Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, everybody, welcome to West Point, Mississippi, home of Mossy Oak brand camo, the Gamekeeper Studio. Lanny, you got a smile on your face. Goodness Man, gracious. it's just a pretty morning, you well, know. Well, you've been on vacation for four or hey, five I'm, days. I look refreshed you, you and do. recreated. But, and it's been worse on us with yeah. you gone. We've, what have uh, you been doing? It, uh, I tell you what, you know what? You know that I bought a couple of weeks ago, I was so happy to buy a new-to-me used four-wheeler. Oh, I'm yeah. so proud of the it. The Grizz. Yeah, so this past week has just mm. been chaos around here. Yesterday, I walk outside, and somebody has parked it out in the parking lot with a for sale sign <laughs> on it. <laughs> Did you get it sold? Oh, I got it pulled back in and hid the key. I'm still trying to figure out who did that to I me. got a pretty good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Classic so, case of whodunit. Yeah. It, it is. It's that's crazy. something you would do to somebody else. It, it is, what, is. exactly what it is. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. So, look, across the table, we've got Neil Hayes. And then we've got Daniel Hayes, and we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about today. Yeah, it's turkey season. Yeah, we got Max sitting over here who's texting as we speak. He's Somebody looking at Onyx. Trying to he's find not texting, he's looking at Onyx. Yeah. And the stars must have lied. Neil, you called Vandy up a turkey, he killed it? Yeah, I, yeah, I called up uh, Turkey Vandy, and uh, he doesn't always kill him, but uh, sometimes he does. And the <laughs> uh, turkey uh, actually got, I was 30, probably 30 yards behind Vandy, and the turkey had actually got around Vandy and by him, Ooh. and he was about to get shot by Neil. And uh, <laughs> the turkey had about 10 hens with him, and whenever he came out in a, in a clear opening in a road uh, where I could shoot him, he would stand right in the middle of all his hens, and uh, so I, I didn't have a clean shot without shooting you know, a bunch of hens. And so basically he they kind of came, they called him past Vandy around, and then they kind of got to where they there's nothing there, there's no decoys or anything out, so there's – they didn't see anything, and so they kind of started working their way back where they came from, and Vandy was able to get a clean shot and uh, kill the turkey. But you could see, you know, with a uh, red-faced turkey, I mean, you could see those wings and those that red on the turkey. It was real foggy and misty, but you could see it glowing kind of through the fog. Before mm. you, you know, usually when you see a turkey, first thing you see is that maybe his white head coming right, through the yeah. woods. Ping pong ball Exactly, and that red was the first thing I saw when I saw him coming through the woods. So was Did, he a bronze phase? Is that what uh, you bronze call? red? I don't know. I, I, I'm not a. I know he's beautiful. I yeah, Golly. I think I think it's called a red phase. Uh, there's like a that's a more of a scientific term for it, but a red phase is the redneck term Mac, for it. I why think. Don't you fact check. Get, we got dial up internet now, Mike. If you it starts with an E. I know you're, that. Euristic. Euristic. Yeah, Euristic. Euristic. Something like that. Doctor Doctor Chamberlain said, "You're thristic." You're you're thristic. If that's how he spelled it. I don't. I'm having a hard time even pronouncing it. It, it. it, it, it had others. Said, his words said, 
uh, whatever, however you pronounce that word, your thristic bird, basically a red color phase. Really pretty. We don't really know much about them, except it's certainly more rare than a smoke phase turkey. But beyond that, it's very unclear. How about yeah. that? It even had like red, the bottom of its feet were red, like it had stepped in yeah. self-tanning lotion or something. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. It, and it's hard, in pictures, it's hard to do it justice. But when you get up close and look at the little intricate details of each feather and like all the red bars and all the back feathers and stuff, I mean, it was beautiful turkey, ivory spurs. I mean, just a once-in-a-lifetime turkey, and of course, Vandy killed it. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, had y'all seen the turkey no, before? No, don't run trail cameras there. Uh, had not been out there since last spring. It's actually uh, where Jason Hart finished his uh, slam last year, and that's oh, yeah. the last time I've been on that property and went back out there. Dang. That would have been wild if, yeah. if uh, Hart yeah. finished his slam with that bird. Oh, oh, my been, God. But I think, I think this turkey was a two-year-old, so I don't think he would have been able to legally kill this turkey as last year. Yeah. So. It, yeah. it could be a three-year-old. Yeah. Like that, like Mike Chamberlain says, like you know, Spurs don't always tell you how old they are. E R Y T H R I S T I C. That's yeah. how Dr. Chamberlain it. spelled it. Yeah. So anyway, uh, what's a beautiful turkey? Once in a lifetime turkey. Yeah. yeah. It, but it was. I mean, it was just a special. But uh, as much as I knock on Bandy, it was really cool. Seeing and it, him it sounds like time. a fun hunt too. Like, yeah. Was, I'm it, sure your heart was beating with uh, all yeah. those hens real close. Yeah. yeah he he had a bunch of hens with him, but he was still gobbling a little bit. Uh, gobbled. Four or five times, uh, closing the distance, and then uh, gobbled once more once we after we saw him. Uh, so yeah, it was a really so, cool hunt. So mm. correct me if I'm wrong, but I think sometime next, maybe next Tuesday, you've got a pretty special hunt. Maybe the both of you guys will be involved in that with with. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, we were just talking about it. Uh, Will's got a check with his. Te- he's got a te- check with his wife. Sorry, I got Will Dixon there. Will Dixon. Uh, everybody around here knows his dad's birthday is. Uh, April, I mean, March 22nd every year. He's, you know, that's one of his big things has been able to hunt on his dad's birthday. His dad, Bob, obviously is no longer with us, and he loved hunting on his birthday, but he had a curse. He was never able to kill a turkey on his birthday. And so Will basically was cursed up until last year. Will and I went down to Florida to finish his uh, his, grand, his lifetime Grand Slam with an Osceola. Well, the day we were traveling down there was on Bob's birthday last year, and he was able to kill a turkey and uh, finally get the monkey off his back. So, oh, wow. You know, yeah, that's cool. Long story yeah. short, they moved the season back in Alabama this year, and that's where Will lives, and he's not able to hunt on the 22nd this year on his dad's birthday. So we're going to see if he can come up here and hunt with us. Nice. And, well, Lanny will attest to this, but more often than not, that morning your dad sends out a little group text, yep. and it'll be like, hey, everybody, y'all need to remember. That's Bob Dixon. Buddy Bob. Yep. Yep. You know, I've never killed a turkey on my birthday either. I had never killed a turkey on my birthday. <laughs> of course, mine's in November. Mine's so. in July. I'm usually fishing. Yeah. What about you, Dudley? I'm May 20th, so I may mm, have to go to Canada one. or yeah. something. Go to Utah. Why don't we yeah. out there? Right. Yeah, well, well, that's exciting. So one of the reasons that you guys are here, we've got a couple of different things to talk about. And so, Daniel, why don't we start talking about this stamp project, Griff? Right off the bat. Yeah, so uh, as everybody knows, we we try to dedicate as much money, time, effort, resources as we can to uh, helping out the wild turkey. And if if, if you're in the turkey community on social media, you've seen a lot of conversation lately about why don't more states uh, continue their uh, wild turkey stamp program? Because back in the day, all kind of states had turkey stamps, and it's really not a whole lot of effort that goes into that process. So... Regardless of if you raise a couple thousand dollars or a hundred thousand uh, dollars, it's it's worth it no matter how much you invest into it. And uh, you know, there's not many states. I don't 
Arkansas definitely does it right now. I don't know what other states still have a. I wonder why they don't a state want, turkey don't stab do it anymore. program. But yeah, you know, it's 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 being talked about now. Mississippi's talking about it. And other states are talking about it. But uh, because of that conversation happening, and uh, shout out to our friend Jason Worley in, in Missouri, uh, we were all talking, and it was like, why didn't uh, why didn't a brand just do a turkey stamp for themselves? Somebody who really cares about turkeys. Uh, there's no rule that says only states and, and and the federal government are allowed to sell conservation stamps. So it was just like a light bulb. We were like, well, duh, why doesn't, yeah. you know, Mossy Oak and Gamekeepers uh, sell a wild turkey stamp? And, you know, we don't have any – we're not a conservation group that has administrative uh, fees. You know, if we do something like this, every cent we raise goes back to the turkeys. So basically that's it. By the time this podcast publishes, uh, you should be able to buy it. We'll have a $15 wild turkey conservation stamp, the first one ever, hopefully – a lot of people buy it, and we support some good uh, work, and and we do this every year. Uh, but yeah, it's a uh, we tried to really hard to track down the uh, anybody who keeps up with with the obviously the most famous stamps are the migratory bird stamps, uh, and the contest every year to pick the painting is a big deal. So we wanted the first image or uh, artwork that we used to be cool. So we tracked down the original Mossy Oak moment. Uh, painting if you've ever yeah. seen it in somebody's mm-hmm. office or hanging beautiful. up 1996 a guy named dan morton painted it uh it's got two strutting turkeys and a, and a father and son hunting up against the tree it's a really cool painting um so that's the painting for the for the original stamp and um with with something like this and transparency is really important so uh you know we've got marcus lashley and, and mike chamberlain and you know dad and whoever else within uh mossy oaks walls that you can people can trust to determine what projects we support uh, with the money that we raise, and you know, it depends, yeah, depends on how much so, we raise. But so it's not going to a specific. It's it's, it's it, not going to any organization. You know, we will, we do plenty to support the National Wild Turkey Federation and and a lot of other uh, groups. And so the money that we raise from this, every cent will go directly toward uh, individual projects that that Mossy Oak, Dr. Chamberlain, Dr. Uh, Lashley decide uh, need the money. Yeah, love yeah. it. Yeah. Love some conservation. So yeah. freaking cool. That's it it really is. My uh, my trivia question, Daniel already gave away the answer. My trivia question today was <laughs> going to be how many heartbeats are in that photograph. And because uh, most people look at that photo, they don't realize there's two people dressed, decked out in mossy oak in the background. Because you, you just because it's see mossy oak. Because yeah, bottom of course, yeah. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't see the kid the first time I saw that painting. I looked at it and I saw a, a just a hunter with a box call with two turkeys strutting ten yards from me. I'm like, what in the heck is going on here? Like, mm. <laughs> and then I saw the kid and I'm like, okay, he's calling up a turkey for his son. At first, it was like. What is, what is this? It's kind of it's it's like, it's like the arrow. It's like the arrow <laughs> in the FedEx logo. Down. I was like 20 years old before I found out there was yeah, an arrow in that logo. Yeah, that's right. right. Now you can't and I was, it. And I was probably about 20 when I found out there was people in the, the Mossy Oak moment. That uh, painting hung over the fireplace at uh, Shamula at our camp house my whole life, and uh, I just realized, you know, not too long ago that there were actually people in it. So. That's some good camo. <laughs> yeah. Some better tri- preoccupied tri- yeah. with other yeah. things. Yeah, I just down. didn't study it too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was 18 years old before I knew all naked women didn't carry spears. Oh, and National Geographic <laughs> had a huge influence on your life, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, well. Mac was Bobby King of the dad jokes. <laughs> Thank you for that, Richie. <laughs> anyway, if you're, looking, if you're looking cool. for any information on you know how to buy one, two, ten of them. Uh, by the time this podcast is released, you should be able to look on mossyoak.com or any of our any of the Mossyoak brand social media accounts, gamekeepers, whatever, and find some uh, information about the stamp. It, it's, we're we're I mean, and I'd like to say too, it's just something we're super excited about. Like, there's 
few projects that come along that that really like get you on your feet and like get you really excited and this is one of them and the other project we're going to talk about today is another one of those things. Yeah. Well, so w- what else about the stamp? When this podcast comes out, the stamps will be available. And, and when the the spring issue of Gamekeeper magazine shows up in your mailbox or on your doorstep, uh, this the correct me if I'm wrong, Bobby, but since it's been Gamekeepers Farming for Wildlife magazine, uh, there hasn't been anything other than a that's right wildlife so, on the cover. So the the stamp is in the lower left corner of the magazine, courtesy of of Bobby. Well, it's the first time we've done so we've yep. added something to the cover, yep. and uh, man, man, we really feel like this is a great project. So it looks great. Yeah, I had the reference from Allscape Moment in my lap the whole time and didn't look at it. But yeah, anybody, if you don't subscribe to Game Care Magazine, or if you're just a turkey nut and you want to just buy the spring issue because this is a really special issue, uh, you should do that. Yeah, you should. And it, but you get it at Walmart, Track Supply, Bass Pro Shop. Mm-hmm. Subscribe online. So, so yeah, so it's uh. Boy, it's, uh, this is, the, the stamp is going to – I predict it will be something that people will collect. It's only 15 bucks, But – Is it a – did, I missed it. Is it a limited or is this where you can get as many as you want? This is not a limited. Uh, if somebody wants to – Buy 200 of yeah, them. Yeah, if somebody wants to – I think that's great. Donate money to fund wild turkey research. We don't want to tell them we're only printing – That makes it even better. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely and, not limited. And, I, you know, I lo- totally trust this company and, and, and its ability to direct funds. But when, when Daniel says that Mossy not making anything up, they're not making it. No. We're not making anything up. It's all going to the wild turkeys. Now, we got to cover the cost of the stamp, I think. But, you know, it's minuscule in comparison. So it's a, it's a really neat project. Oh, it's super exciting. I mean, the way this whole place started was, you know, wild turkey conservation work. So it's uh, that's where our roots are, and that's where our focus is going to be um, in, you know, just for the sake of the wild turkey. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's exciting. Yeah. Thank you all for sharing that. And so the other information, uh, I'm very excited about it as well. Who, I'm pumped one? about this one. Yeah. Neil, you want to start with this one? Did everyone sign their NDA? <laughs> I, I got mine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll start by it. So we're – the inspiration for this uh, obviously came from two places. Uh, our grandfather and wanting to honor him with, with something really cool and something we can be proud of, and and Bob Dixon. So but a lot of really, really passionate turkey hunters, hardcore turkey hunters, gamekeepers, know about the, the Mossy uh, limited edition Bob Dixon turkey vest that was made in 2007. Limited run, 1,986 vests were made. Nowadays, they're, they're resold on eBay for anywhere from 2000 to four or $5,000 for the really low numbers. And uh, anyway, so the, the recent, <clears throat> basically resell these vests and the, everybody wants one and it's like you can't find them and people were just like, I can't pay $2,000 for a turkey vest, but they're just like desperate to have one of these vests. And so we've always talked about uh, making something similar uh, you know, years later and finally we've been working on this project for a couple of years now and uh it's hopefully uh, we're getting very close uh, to making it a reality. And so this is what we have now is uh, it's going to be for sale next spring, but um, it's going to be the Mr. Fox limited edition turkey vest. Uh, and it's designed. Uh, there we go. There we go. Uh, and it's designed. Uh, it's based off the Dixon vest. It looks a lot like it. A lot of the features are the same. It, and uh, we changed enough about it to where it has its own identity. Um, but it still has that same classic look of the Dixon that that the Dixon vest had, and so uh, 
we're really excited to uh, for pe- to share this with people and give people an opportunity to have a, a really special limited edition turkey vest that means more than just a another turkey vest. You know, it's it's it represents Mr. Fox and and all that he stands for and what he means to turkeys and turkey conservation and all that. And so, anyway, we're really excited about the project and uh, yeah. Well, it's got so many details associated with it. I mean, it's when you look. It's the best of a lifetime. I mean, it, it, it really, really is. It is, and we we tried really, really hard for, you know, the Dixon vest. Nobody could have predicted that it would become, you know, the most coveted piece of turkey hunting apparel ever made. I mean, it's unbelievable. Somebody paid thirty six hundred dollars for one on eBay the other day that had uh, the original calls that that came with it, and luckily, like you said, the attention to detail was paid on the front end for the Dixon vest, uh, and it. It was a vest that that really honored Mr. Bob in a in a great way, and it was worthy of bearing his name. And we gave that same attention to detail with this because, obviously, anybody around here that knows Popall knows that that if we're making something and putting his name on it, it needs to be our best effort. So we think it is. It's absolutely. It's a turkey vest that Bob would be proud of, and it's a turkey vest that that I'm proud of that it has uh, Popall's name on it. Um, we can't give away all the details uh, yet. We're not going to be sharing a official photos or anything of the vest like that so you'll have to hope that you're either passing through west point and get to maybe come sneak a peek <laughs> of it at the office or uh if you're friends with the right people um but it's got it's got some really cool details you know the straps obviously we wanted to do something cool with that because the straps on the dixon vest make it immediately identifiable mm-hmm. and then of course since uh the dixon vest is is break up with bottom line on the inside uh you know if we're making a vest for Papa, it's got to be a bottom line vest. So we can that, we can at least two tall uh, mossy oak vest. Right. Yeah, <laughs> we, so we got bottom line on the outside green leaf on the inside. Uh, that those aren't that's not sharing too many details because I think yeah. anybody if they know think if it's a fox vest it's it's, it's going to be, be bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> now is this line. first vest is it be is it going to be traveled around the yeah. spring? So so what uh, what I brought in here today was was a prototype vest that we uh, received a few weeks ago. Um, and this spring actually started a couple of days ago. We're going to pass this vest uh, from hand to hand from now till the uh, end of May. Uh, Daniel and I and our cousin Jack uh, are going to go up to Maine and hunt and finish this project off. But basically, this vest is going to get hunted with by a different person every day of the season this year, as much as we can. Some, you know, there'll be rainouts and stuff and traveling days and stuff like that. But as many days as possible, many people as possible. We'll hunt with this vest and pass it, and, and there'll be a journal that lives with the vest, and people hmm. log, you know, kind of their thoughts in a, in a journal, maybe from their hunt or just some stuff about Mr. Fox, stuff like that. There's a uh, a log book to you can, if you kill a turkey, you can you know write down in the log book uh, details of the hunt, stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's just it's just one of those things that we we were trying to come up with a creative way to kind of get this vest uh, to a lot of our really close. So this basically this traveling fox vest project will be. The people that accompany this vest on the journey will be y'all, friends, uh, close employee, family, close some family, other, some hazes from uh, Papa's yeah. side of the family, yeah. employees of Mossy Oak, yeah, just, just basically so, people so that are close cool. with us, close Mossy Oak in the turkey hunting world. And so, anyway, so we're really excited about it. Uh, and uh, yeah, it just kicked off. I think Dad actually hunted with it this morning. Uh, I, I did yeah. see a little mud on the. Yeah, scene. that was yeah. yeah. Dad took it this morning. He got a little muddy, but he did not bring back any blood on it. Boy, whoever gets the first tally yeah. marking that mm-hmm. thing is going to yeah. be pulled. Yeah. I've, got, I've got chill bumps. So yeah. We can do start doing an update. Blood on yeah, the Mr. Fox on vest. vest. So right. Update where this thing's going. Yeah, well, that, one of the coolest thing about the Dixon vest is that you know, obviously, in the in the days of social media and all this, with people 
uh, keeping up with that. I'm also here in general. Plenty of people have gotten a share in uh, Pawpaw's, you know, deer season and turkey season in the past really four or five years have been the, the ones where everybody's just on edge pulling for him. And you see him at the grocery store and they ask about Pawpaw if he's killed a turkey or if he's deer hunted yet. Um, the amount of people nowadays, you know, the Dixon Vest was in 2007. The amount of people now, young kids, even older people, whatever, that otherwise would have never known who Bob Dixon was, know about him because the Dixon Vest exists. And it's just such a cool, tangible way to carry on his legacy. And I think, one, you know, this will be a limited edition vest. We're not, it's not something we're going to make every year. Uh, next spring we'll, we'll have a limited run of them. And, uh, yeah, it'll, it'll hopefully uh, – it'll live up to – the name in the same way that Dixon Vest did, and it'll be a tangible way for people to carry a piece of uh, Pawpaw and a piece of Pawpaw's legacy in the woods with them for, uh, you know, next spring and, a, and decades worth of turkey seasons. Yeah, I, I joked with Uncle Bill the other day. I said one uh, one day we'll do a, a Bill Sugg limited edition vest, and we're going to put eight push button pockets. <laughs> <laughs> you can just roll around on the ground. Nothing but push button pockets and paddle box pockets. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, yeah. But, well, it'd be great if Mr. Fox could hunt in it this, this spring. I, uh, I sure yeah. hope he gets uh, to go. This we're uh, yeah, our plan is uh, if he's filling up to it, it's like kind of borderline Saturday morning, uh, whether it might be too cold or not. But we're going to try to get him out Saturday morning for the first time. So that's great. And yeah, I we'll assume see. it's a given that Will Dixon will be hopefully wearing it. Uh, yeah. yeah, if yeah. he comes in town yeah. next week, he will. Yeah, this is sure. a awesome. really neat project. Yeah, Dixon Vest was one through nineteen hundred eighty six, one thousand nine hundred eighty six. Uh, that's the year Mossy uh, started. Right. Uh, and we were trying to come up with a number in that ballpark, but a different number to where it would be similar. And it was um, yeah. So the first uh, first turkey Papa ever killed was 1944. Mm. Uh, so these will be the limited edition Fox Fest numbered one through uh, 1944. Wow! And you know, the, the, when he killed his first turkey, we were preparing to storm Normandy. So that's pretty cool. Obviously, that's that year's a lot more. That year's a lot more significant. Than just Pawpaw's first turkey, but yeah, yeah for, for us, that's what it. I, I tell you, I get chills, but I, I get them from your dad from time to time the way he pays respect to his parents and the way you guys pay respect to Mr. Fox and, and your dad. But that, I mean, it's just so special. Yeah, he's, I mean, and Pawpaw's like, he's not just our Pawpaw, he's like the whole town of West Point's Pawpaw. Mm-hmm. Everybody, you're into a gas station or a restaurant, everybody, you know, it's like the number one most asked question how's Mr. Fox doing? How's Mr. Fox doing? Well, it's like, well, he's doing great. I'm, I'm going to, uh, Daniel and I are meeting him this afternoon after this podcast to shoot his gun and make sure he's ready to go. So, you know, all right. He's, yeah. he's got, he's definitely got some blood in his eye. Well, good. <laughs> uh, well, well, we hope that weather will be good for you. No doubt yeah, about and it. There's, and going back to the Dixon vest, though, just to show <clears throat> how much Mr. Bob and this vest means to people, uh, Daniel can do this story justice he, uh, better than I can, but uh, basically the story about uh, Sheldon Loveless donating the vest. Yeah, uh, Sheldon. So I got – people always just assume me and Neil had, you know, people, the number one vest was Will, number two was auctioned at NWTF, number three is at our Mossy Oaks office. Everybody just assume, oh, but, you know, Danny and Neil have a couple. We didn't even have Dixon vests uh, after they were made, and then Neil got one from Will. I think he told that story last year. And uh, Sheldon, who helped uh, create the Dixon vest, uh, gave me one of me and they'll both have some of the, pr- the prototype vests. So Sheldon gave me that. And when he gave it to me, he told a story about how he had saved a couple of vests. I got one of them. But before he gave me one of his extra ones, this lady had called him and her husband had the same kind of cancer as Mr. Bob did. And his dream was to be buried in a Dixon vest. So he was a lifelong turkey hunter, big Mossy Egg fan. <laughs> it's a tear, tearjerker. Um, yeah, so she I'm, called, she, she 
found somebody gave her Sheldon's number and said that he may be able to help. So Sheldon gave one of the Dixon vests that he had saved, uh, and that guy was buried wearing a wearing a Dixon vest. Wow. You will you will not see that one on eBay. No, no. Wow, that's uh, it's pretty pretty powerful story. But it just goes to show you what Mr. Bob meant to people. I mean, he I mean he impacted so many people in so many lives, and still to this day, I mean, mm-hmm. he's still impacting people and will be for a long time. So I mean, it overall it just shows how much all turkey hunters honor the wild turkey. You know? Exactly. We don't yeah. we don't treat it like an animal. It's like no. a religion to us. Yeah. It's, it's, it's I mean, different. that's why we all came yeah. to tears Respect. in the last one minute. Well, they have to be protected. You know, they, they have to be handled with care. You can't just go, everybody just go full kill mode on turkeys all the time. If that were the case, we wouldn't have them anymore. They were basically on the brink of extinction and, you know, some of your lifetimes, not mine, but, you know, not long before I was born, they were on the brink of extinction. That's not that long ago. And it could happen again. So you just got to be careful with turkeys. And that's, well, yeah, why, with the, that's why product conservation is obviously so important. That's why we preach it every day we wake up. Mm-hmm. And to Dudley's point, something about, like, obviously everybody that considers himself a, uh, a turkey hunter above all else, how much you care about the turkey. But one of the aspects of, uh, you know, turkey calls, the different types of turkey calls, the vest, what goes in your vest, like there's just something about the gear that you need for turkey hunting. It just, I don't know, it's like there's not... Deer and duck hunting, obviously, there's a rich history with uh, hand-carved duck decoys and uh, goose decoys and duck and goose calls. But the amount of different types of uh, turkey calls and uh, the vests that people hold that have sentimental value to them and the guns that they use, there's just, you know, there's more things for you to be sentimentally attached to that uh, are part of your turkey hunt. So, you know, what goes in your vest and the vest that you wear, they just, they're really special to people. So it's cool that we can make something uh, like this. We love turkeys. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I personally get emotional almost every time I'm in the turkey woods. Whether I got emotional. Be on the way, week. in the woods, <laughs> or on the way home. That's how much I love it. Amen. And I, I think so many other people do the exact same thing. We love it. Wow. It, well, I'll tell you what. We couldn't be more proud of you guys and coming up with this idea and, and executing it and honoring uh, uh, Mr. Fox and, and, and Bob and, and and what you're doing with Will and the, the, the stamps and we're, we're giving back to con- giving back to the turkey. We're not we're we're giving back more than we take. That yeah, is for sure. I hadn't even asked y'all. I just showed y'all the uh, obviously I just showed y'all the turkey vest right before we went on air. Uh, I hadn't even asked your thoughts. Do y'all like it? What do you think? I mean, oh, I think it looks awesome. Yeah, I'm, yeah, we'd love it. Yeah, I mean, we we want one right now. So. <laughs> yeah, when's my turn? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I just don't know what to say. That, that those are some awesome projects, and, and Lanny, yeah, are you over there emailing? What are you doing? I'm looking for places to turkey hunt. You've got he's, mail. He's on, <laughs> he's on all X right now. <laughs> Every I'm, time I'm, I look at Lanny, he's uh, typing something uh, in his computer there. So I've, I've got one more thing to add. But if anybody wants to uh, put their email address in to make sure that they're on a list to guarantee they're not going to forget. Uh, about the vest or they want to be the first to know when we have more information about it later on this year uh, to release you can go to mossio.com and put your email address in and, and you'll be on a list of, uh, of people to ensure that uh, you're the first to know when we have more information about it hey this is Mac checking game cameras is one of the many pleasures I get from gamekeeping OnX helps keep track of my camera locations to be sure I'm getting the information that I need to make the best decisions for the wildlife. Try it out for yourself and see. Use coupon code MOSSYOAK to save 20% on your OnX subscriptions. 
know where you stand. Look, guys, so we're going to change directions here. And we've been hearing about some exciting wild turkey research that's going on. Missouri has just always been a state that's had a lot of turkeys. I mean, when you think about turkey hunting, Missouri is kind of a mecca, a place people always want to travel to. I think we've all been there and hunted. I know we have. And Daniel's over there texting, Mike. Are y'all texting each other? What is going on here? (laughs) It's turkey season. They're MRI. All right. So, look, we've got two special guests. We've got Raina Tile, and she is a biologist with the Missouri Department of Conservation. She's a wild turkey and a grouse biologist. And we've also got Dr. Michael Byrne, and he is the Associate Professor of Wildlife Ecology at the University of Missouri. We're so excited to have both of you guys on here. I think Raina is actually out banding turkeys right now. How cool is that? Conservation yeah. in action, baby. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, Dr. Byrne, can we go to you? Can we call you Michael, if you don't mind? Mike. Mike. If so, would you please kind of tell us uh, some of the research that you guys have going on there in Missouri? Yeah, sure. So, this is a collaborative study between us at Mizzou and Missouri Department of Conservation, and NWTF is helping out as well. Um, we are basically trying to figure out um, – how different components of the environment influence wild turkey reproductive success. Um, What affects nesting success? What affects poult survival? And then based off what we learn, um, what could potentially be done management-wise to sort of optimize reproduction? Well, that's awesome. That's what it's all about, Bobby. Well, I think they've been doing this for a number of years, and and they've already learned some stuff, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Can you kind of go into where you think this thing is going? So we're, we're starting year two of this particular project. There, there's been some research done uh, earlier by MDC um, that just kind of documented survival rates and reproductive rates. And so this new study that we started uh, last year, this is uh, we're in our second year now. Rena's out with my grad students, hopefully trying to get some more birds on the air for this year as we speak. Um, we're kind of looking at Everything at once. We're looking at predator movements and populations. We're looking at arthropod biomass and abundance. That's, you know, the pulp prey, what they need. Um, We're looking at different aspects of climate and the weather at pretty fine scale. We're looking at stuff related to the vegetation, um, temperature and thermal cover. Um, And we're the individual behaviors of individual hen turkeys and we're kind of putting it all together in a stew to take this sort of an ecosystem look to tease out what things are important and when are they important and what could we potentially do something you know to help out with Raina I'm hoping you're still there but from your perspective as a biologist in the field what you're doing with this banding it's my understanding y'all are putting GPS transponders on on specific on hens and trying to study their track their movements and what habitat they're frequenting and, and what all do you expect to learn from that and what kind of information will that GPS unit give you guys? I don't know if Mike wants to provide a brief overview of what the GPS units do and then I can talk about you know how we plan to use all that information to inform management. I can do that. So we're using these uh, new new style of GPS tags. Um, we've kind of gone to a, a different company that hasn't been tried before with the GPS tags. Um, 
there's some cool things about these. Um, probably one of the more interesting ones is these tags have accelerometers built into them. So this would be, if any of you guys have like a, like a Fitbit or a GPS watch that tracks your steps, um, it's got an accelerometer in it. And so we've basically got those attached to the turkeys. Um, and we can use that information. It, it collects data on that every like two minutes. And we can use that to sort of understand what the turkey was doing based on the data that comes in from that accelerometer. Was she walking? Was she running? Was she sitting down? Was she incubating a nest? And we're pairing that with the GPS locations, which are taken um, at pretty short intervals during some times of the year. Uh, when the bird is incubating a nest, for example, um, when the bird gets up and starts moving and the accelerometer tells us that she's walking, we are gonna get a location on that bird every minute to see where does she go? Does she go get a thing of water? How long does she stay away from the nest? What does she do while she's away from the nest? Um, when the birds have their broods with them, we're going to location every 10 minutes during the day. So we're going to be able to drill down and get some really good information on their movements, their habitat use. And then importantly, what are they doing in those different habitats? Do they use some type of habitats for traveling? Do they use some type of habitat specifically for foraging? Um, and really get it, dig into that kind of stuff. Wow. That is right. So a Fitbit. That yeah, brings us into, you know, how we're using that for management. So um, the big piece of that puzzle being the brood rearing component, you know, it's one thing to know where that hen is taking her pulse, but it's another thing to be able to interpret how they're using different habitat types, different land cover types. And so that accelerometer piece of those transmitters will help us figure out not only where they're going, but how they're using the landscape and how where they're going and how they're using the landscape influences the survival of those pulps. And so hopefully we can dial in on some of those areas where we're seeing good pulp survival, figure out where that hen went, uh, where those pulps were, maybe what areas they were foraging in, what areas they were using for different cover types. Um, and then hopefully try to look at that, you know, vegetative cover, figure out what it looks like, how it's laid out on the landscape and try to mimic that and get more, high quality broodering habitat out on the landscape to hopefully improve pulp survival, which will improve turkey production overall. Because that's one of the things that we've seen over the last several decades is that pulp survival component of the reproductive equation is considerably lower now than it was several decades ago. Um, a study we did back in the 80s compared to a study that we did more recently from about 2014 to 2018, those summers there, uh, we found pulp survival was about half of what it had been uh, during that study in the 80s. And so I'm um, really trying to dial into that piece of, of the equation. Uh, another thing that we really hope to get from this study are cause-specific mortality of pulps. So oftentimes in the past, we monitor pulp survival at the brood level. Um, we'll know how many eggs hatched from that nest, so how many pulps that hen started with. And we'll go out and monitor them periodically every week or so for about four weeks to figure out how many pulps she ends up with at that 28-day post-hatch mark. And we can kind of infer what the overall, you know, brood survival was. But we can't locate those pulps and figure out what exactly caused their mortality. We'll know that they died or didn't make it, but we won't know exactly why. So another uh, cool piece of this project is we'll be tagging individual pulps with VHF transmitters and monitoring them as individuals, not just a member of a brood, and hopefully be able to locate uh, those transmitters upon mortality events and, and figure out exactly what led to that mortality event. 
So as an agency, we can say, you know, most of our pulps are dying for these reasons, and here's how we might mitigate that using all the other information we're learning from this project. Oh, wow. Fascinating. How are y'all going to catch pulps? Can you explain that? Uh, It's very difficult. (laughs) (laughs) They hide really well in thick vegetation, as you might imagine. So the the idea for that is you home in on the female, like the day after the nest hatches, get out there at dawn, sort of encircle her. um, And then right at dawn, you should be able to go in and and capture the pulse from there, which is, uh, I can tell you, a lot easier said than done. Sounds like it. Yeah, Dudley is really quick. We can send him up there to catch some for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on out. We need help. <laughs> so, Raina, you were speaking of some data from the 80s, and I have been doing some research in preparation for this, and it looked like, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe pulse survival in the 80s in Missouri was in the mid-90s. And so are you saying that now that it's like in the mid-20s? Is that what y'all are thinking? Um, Did I, I read that be, right? Or? I think, uh, I believe the figure from the 80s was on average during all the years covered during that study, pulse survival to their first, you know, their first four weeks of of life post-hatch was about 46% is what we found. Um, And then the more recent study, I believe that average across the five years we looked at was closer to 23%, so about half. But some of the years of that study, uh, I believe the second year of that study, pulse survival was 6% that year. Like the first year it was around 40, the second year it was around 6. So there was a pretty big amount of variation they were seeing, but on average, um, about 23% of those pulps were surviving over those five years. So yeah, significantly lower. Um, a few other reproductive rates were lower than in the past, but pulp survival was the most obviously uh, changed from several decades ago. Yeah. And just to speak, that, that variation is kind of important. So the big question is what causes those big swings in variation, which is why we do these studies over a few years at a time yeah. to try to get at, okay, mm-hmm. was it something to do with, with weather or food availability in one year? that was really bad one year, but then really good the next year. You know, what kind of causes those booms and busts? Sure. I'm guessing weather could have a big influence, but so these hints that y'all are trapping. So, um, and you'll be able to tell what percentage of those hens actually have a net. Boy, this would be, should be some great data though, but, but to learn if those hens successfully nest and if those, what percentage of those hatch, uh, uh, what, what kind of, percentages are you you guys seeing now on on hens being able to have a successful nest it's pretty let's let's see trying to think back from last year off the top of my head uh most of the females got to the point where they were incubating a nest and then i want to say about 20 percent successfully hatched the nest from there Mm. Yeah, I I don't know if I have the female or hen success figure at the top of my head, but I know our nesting rate was about 80% last year, which is re- is good. That's what you would expect to see about 80% of your hens attempting a nest. Um, and I know it was about 21% nest success. So that just means individual nests that were successful, but I am not sure how many hens were successful off the top of my head. So what that female success looked like last year. 
Yeah. It should be pretty close. I, I think we only have one or pretty two. Pretty close to the next. Yeah. Yeah. Only yeah. one or two hands well, last year. That's pr- probably that's probably what I was trying to ask. I just didn't ask it in the right way. But boy, boy, some of these numbers are depressing when you hear. What you just think they ought to be, have more success than that. And do you guys? From what the research y'all have done, and I'll be quiet here and let Dudley and Lanny and everybody else ask some questions, but what are y'all seeing is causing the, the, the majority of the failure to, to have a nest be successful? And also, the, what's happening to the poles? So with, with the nests that fail for the ones that we were able to get into the nests um, and actually take a look at, most of the time, it looks like the nest is predated um, by a myriad of possible things. It's hard to tell exactly what caused it. Um, that seems to be the largest cause of nest failure is typically predation. Yeah, and that's typical across populations of turkeys. Um, we know every year there's going to be a majority of nests that are lost to predators, and that's why turkeys are designed to re-nest after if or if they have a, a failed first nest attempt. So usually we see pretty high rates of re-nesting, especially in our adult hens. So birds that it's not their first year trying to you know reproduce after hatching. Um, last year we did see a pretty low re-nesting rate in our birds, but that could be due to the fact that we had quite a few juvenile hens or yearling hens in our sample. So those were hens that just that was it was their first year trying to reproduce after hatching the previous spring or summer. Um, and they tend to have, in some parts of the country, you know, a lower uh, re-nesting rate than the adult hens. But, but yeah, so turkeys are designed to to lose nests. They know we know we're going to lose nests to predators. But, um, you know, it's just how many are you losing proportionally? How many are able to hatch, and then how many of the poults are able to survive from year to year is kind of what creates the whole puzzle. <laughs> yeah, and that's why they have such large clutches too. Like you know, they could have up to. 12 birds kind of on average or a clutch, which for most birds, that's a, you know, that's a huge clutch size. So they're kind of a species that's like, all right, we're going to get nailed by predators a lot. So we should be able to re-nest and have a lot of young when we're good at it. Mm-hmm. Lanny, have you got a question? Exactly. <clears throat> I mean, you know, obviously we, we talk about the factors that are contributed to pulp mortality. Trapping is one of the, you know, uh, I think, more significant things where we've seen impact uh, and now we're trying to figure out what we can do about it. I guess I really would, you know, I was, I was expecting you to say predation, I guess, is the, uh, as the most common factor, what would be the second most common factor? It's hard to say. Sometimes you see nests that just get abandoned or, you know, they just don't hatch for whatever reason, whether they were infertile or the hen just gave up, you know, or she got scared off by something and abandoned it. It depends on the system a lot too. Um, I've worked up in South Dakota in the eastern part where there's a lot of agriculture, a lot of um, cattle, and a lot of haying. And my second greatest cause of nest failure up there was haying from agricultural equipment. So Mm. people, you know, mowing fields and running over nests. So that can be a significant source in some areas. It just depends on if that's a major part of, you know, the landscape in that area. Gotcha. Was, Was seasonal flooding a factor? Not, yeah, not in our study area, not up in North uh, Missouri. I've done some work before in South Louisiana down in like the bayous and it could definitely be a factor in there. Um, We didn't see it last year and up in North Missouri specifically. It's not impossible, but we we didn't see it yet. 
That's typically what we blame it on, flooding and predators. Yeah, that's, so, that's what I was yeah. just asking. They have more. They got a lot more hills up there. Right. We what do you got, call yeah. it? Undulated? Undulation. Yeah, yeah. With flooding, is uh, is that something that like maybe the younger hens aren't smart enough to realize that their nest will, will get flooded, but the older hens will definitely know not to nest in the floodplain? Uh, they do tend to get better at nesting as they get older, so that might be one of the things they pick up on. So, Randall, let me ask you a, a quick question. Uh, you, you know, Missouri, I, I'm a huge – we're all huge fans of the state of Missouri, and the, the, the y'all's conservation program is a model for other states. I think you guys maybe do it better than anybody else with that tax that goes to conservation. So – but when I'm in northern Missouri, it looks so different than southern Missouri. So the data that you guys learn in this study in northern Missouri, will it work and uh, apply to the, the, that, those big rolling hardwood forests uh, in southern Missouri? Yeah, so that's obviously something where some things will be able to translate better than others. Um, the way that we've kind of designed parts of this study is so that we're covering portions of the county we're working in, which is Putnam County. Uh, it has pretty good variation where the eastern half of the county has more forested areas, more um, areas with even some good core forested habitat. And then the western part of the county is a lot more open. And that was very intentional with us choosing a county that had that variation so that we can look at nest predator populations in areas with a lot more core forest habitat versus nest predator populations in an area that's a lot more open and agriculturally dominated so that hopefully we can translate some of that information to other parts of the state that might have varying levels of forest versus open land cover. Um, but obviously there's going to be some things that, that might not translate as well. We'll be able to learn a lot about vegetative structures that provide good brood-rearing habitat. So you know, maybe um, some knee-high grasses and forbs and some overhead cover, stuff like that, that we might not be looking at the exact same tree species or the exact same, you know, grass and, and flower species, but we can recreate similar structures down in other parts of the state using the vegetation that exists on that landscape as well. So to some extent, yes, to some extent, no. Um, and that's something that we get asked a lot, you know, why can't we just do another study like this down in the Ozark region and learn down there? And basically the, the limitations to that is this, this project is expensive, both time and money and resources. And so um, that it would be really difficult to have this exact study replicated across the state um, and do it well. And as thoroughly as we plan to, to do this study up here. We always hear that we always hear habitat, and we always hear predators. Um, I mentioned, I, I overheard Raina saying something about, you know, the hen may just abandon the nest. Um, I know this sounds odd, but I'm a chicken owner, and I've noticed that my hens have very different behavior about how broody they are and about what kind of parent they are. Um, some are always very successful, and some just almost don't even participate. Um, is there any reason to believe that over time there may have been some kind of genetic shift to where the hens may just not be as good of a parent as they used to be? So you're absolutely correct. There's some evidence in turkeys that there's some females that are really good at reproduction and there's some that just 
fail constantly. Um, I don't know if it's a genetic bottleneck. Um, I think just as the populations have grown over the years, you get a, a mix of ones that are better at it than other ones. And so there's been some research in the last few years that have shown that exactly what you see with your chickens, um, we see the same thing with turkeys. There's some of them that will abandon the nest if someone sneezes close by. And then there's some where a predator can like lift her up to look under if she'll sit incubating, right? And there's this trade-off between do I do I leave and live to nest another day or do I really stick with this? So we, we do that exact variation you see in your chickens. We see that in wild turkeys as well. Cool. Um, yeah, one time when dad and I were hunting when I was a kid, we were we were hunting in the spring and there was a hen already laying uh, sitting on her nest and we walked, we had no idea she was there. We walked right up on top of her and dad was actually, he started yelping on a box call. Uh, we were just right off the side of the road and she was a foot from him and she takes off flying as soon as he hits the box call. And we watched that nest for, for however long after that and she never came back. And that was kind of the first experience I had with like a nest in the, in the woods. And it just, I mean, it just, I was just like, God, that really sucks. It was like 16 eggs and they just sat there until like a mm-hmm. raccoon or something came along oh, and ate them. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that... It's, well, so she now would be a, yeah. Well, that'd be a good time to point out, and I, th- I think our guests would totally agree. If guys, if we, if, you know, anybody listening, if you see a nest, leave it alone. Yeah, stay away. Yeah. And then uh, another question: I'm, I've always been real interested in insects. Um, are you able to incorporate uh, like insect counts into into this data? Like, if this is a insect rich area, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually a big part of this particular study is during the summer, we're looking at thermal cover, which is we're putting you know little temperature loggers at places at ground level and different vegetation types. Um, and all through the summer, we're doing insect surveys at the same sites through the summer. So we can match up what species of insects we're seeing, how many we're seeing in different habitat types. How does that match up with the thermal cover, which, you know, the little Turkey poults are sensitive to really extreme warm temperatures or cold temperatures. And yeah, kind of putting that all in because one of the, you know, we could look at things like, okay, in agricultural fields, are we seeing depauperate arthropod abundance? Are there other habitat types that are really good arthropod abundance? And how might that affect, you know, poult survival or poult habitat use? So yeah, that's actually a, that's actually a big part of the study. Dudley, I'm impressed. You've had some really, really intelligent, well thought out <laughs> questions here. <laughs> you can well, do it. Yeah. Have you, you hacked well, my computer? Way better than Bobby's yeah. questions. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's this is really a broad study. I mean, they're getting all kinds of information, and you know, they'll be able to use w- what they're collecting now on on future studies. It's yeah, good. I'm glad really you're here. Cool. So, well, let's uh, Mac. Have you got a question? I do. The bar set pretty high, Mac. Uh, yeah, I'm glad I asked first. Well, it, it, I guess to start, would you say the study has been going on long enough to be able to tell if there has been historic nest sites? And if so, how much does food versus habitat versus thermal cover play a factor into those historic nest sites? Go, Mac. By historical nest sites, do you mean sites that have been reused like Year after year after year. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, in a general area, I know, I know, to an actual spot would be hard to be able to judge. But I mean, like an, a hen comes back to nest in the same area as long as the, you know, the timber or the habitat hasn't changed drastically. Is that something that you all see? Not in this study yet. So we're getting into our second nesting season now. 
So if you ask me that a question in June, I'll be able to give you an answer. <laughs> Very cool. And and so we see, I mean, we, we have a dog kennel and we see, you know, specific uh, female dogs that are just outstanding moms and then some some that aren't so it only makes sense that that turkeys are similar in that regard as we look into what the future of turkey hunting could be like and and smart people like you guys are are doing all this research and trying to provide answers but i can remember when we used to wait it was like in the, the end of August when the duck limits would come out and you would know, well, this year we're going to be able to kill two wood ducks and one pintail, and, and it would change every year. Is it possible that in the future we might be, I mean, Missouri might say, okay, the, 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 you know, this season there's one gobbler for for the two weeks the three week season you you get you can only kill one and and then in a future year it could be three it could it could it be that and i'm not just speaking to missouri i know that's where you guys are but would that make sense to do in a a a wider array of states in the future so i can't predict the future obviously (laughs) but um i think that would probably depend on you know where we see turkey populations continue to go. Um, I would say, especially in Missouri right now, we're not at a point where turkey abundance is so low that harvest is having an impact on it directly. Really what drives abundance from year to year is production. Um, And our harvest rates kind of respond to turkey abundance. So um, we're seeing fewer turkeys now harvested during some of our seasons, like our fall season, than were several decades ago when there was greater participation in some of those seasons. Um, And so in order for us to move to something like that, we would have to be in a position where we would feel that regulating harvest in that way would have some sort of an impact on either hunt quality or turkey population growth or abundance in some way. Um, We are working on developing some new models to help us better monitor turkey population trends across the state. And so that's something that will help us better keep track of our harvest rates from year to year across our seasons and, and everything and could p- potentially lead to, kind of lead to kind of an adaptive harvest management framework, which is about what you're describing. But it's hard to say if that's where we will be in the future. Um, right now, we don't really have any reason to move to something like that. But I don't know where turkeys will be 10, 15, or 20 years from now, and maybe there will be a scientific reason to move to something like that in the future. I have a, I have a question. Yeah, uh, and, and this may be the dumbest question of the day, but uh, you see, like, um, so take wood ducks, for instance. You can make a man-made wood duck box, and they'll nest in it and have a, and a successful nest. Do you think that there in the future there will be any – any research done on maybe if, if there's a way to create some sort of man-made nesting structure that hens would use that would give them a better chance to hatch their nest. Uh, I don't know. It's just kind of a random thought, but. Yeah, I've, uh, I've posed that before from folks. And I think what it just comes down to is, you know, wood ducks can be limited by the amount of nesting cavities because they have to nest in a cavity turkeys nest on the ground so they can nest anywhere so trying to convince a turkey to nest in a specific place or a specific structure that we build perhaps easier said than done so i don't know if if that's really a viable solution to get more successful 
you know, turkey nests just because it's not really part of their ecology to seek out a specific structure like that for nesting. That makes sense. I thought that was a good question. I do too. Um, yeah. I've got a buddy, <laughs> a buddy of mine several years ago was pruning uh, hardwoods, uh, just smaller trees in the woods. Uh, I'm not sure why, but he was limbing them up. Uh, I, I imagine, you know, maybe six to 10 inch trees. He went back and one of the trees, the branches kind of fell almost like in a teepee formation. And he actually found a turkey nest in one of them. Wow. Hmm. So it may be totally random, but uh, that's, maybe. Tr- that's true. A teepee nest like off the ground or? No, the, the branches landed. You no, know, they hit the ground and then the uh, where the limb was attached to the tree kind of leaned up against the tree. It was really crude looking, but it almost looked like a teepee or a tent at the very base of the tree on the ground. And uh, there was a a hen nest in there with okay. the eggs. Mm-hmm. Totally yeah, random. I think that's actually pretty common. And in, in some places, um, a supervisor, past supervisor of mine did work on turkeys out in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And one of the most common places they found turkey nests were in slash from trees falling over. Huh. Turkeys would nest in the dense, you know, fallen over tree structure. So We've seen that's that. something that people have seen um, in specific li- types of landscapes. I've seen that. When I was doing my PhD work in Louisiana, we had a uh, one of the hurricanes come through the Atchafalaya Basin and basically <laughs> knocked down. Every, it seemed like every other tree in my study area. And the next spring, a lot of the nests were, you know, yeah, the top part of the tree and the limbs. They were kind of hidden in there. Yeah. So I, before I forget, I want to point out that then doing the research for this, I read just a lot of stuff about what you guys were doing, and I was real impressed with the way that you were going to put the transmitters on the hens and the especially the poults so they didn't just learn how to do this on wild turkeys they went and found some domestic poults and learned how they could attach these transmitters to the poult so they kind of learned what would work and what wouldn't work so that when they hit the field like and actually started working with wild turkeys they knew what they were doing and I, I don't know, just little things like that. Just, I was just real impressed with how how you guys are running this this research. Thanks. Yeah, I, that's good because it was a lot of work. Build an aviary and everything. Yeah. Well, was, was there anything that surprised you when you were doing that domestic poult uh, study? Like maybe a uh, something that caused trauma in the poult that would uh, alter the poult's behavior after the human contact or or anything like that. Nothing super surprising. Um, I mean, the big thing we were trying was, do we go with a glue-on tag or do we go with like a, a small sutured-on tag? And that's what we were looking was those two types of tags. Then we have a bunch of pulses where we put a, didn't put any tags. So we could look at if it changed their behaviors or their growth rates or if they got injuries afterwards. Um, and we found that none of those two tag types really did, but the glue-on tags would fall off in a few days. Mm. Um, so we kind of our plan is to go with the suture tags on the wild birds Um, because based on what we learned in the aviary, it doesn't seem to really influence them negatively. Um, And it'll actually stay on the bird for at least as long as we need it to. Yeah. And for clarification, uh, the birds that we were using in the captive study were domestic heritage breed turkey poults. So not wild poults that we had hatched from 
you know, gathered up eggs and then had an incubator. So um, as far as influencing, you know, their behavior, these birds were domestic birds, but we chose a heritage breed so that their body size would be a lot more similar to, you know, turkey poults out in the wild compared to those big, you know, white Thanksgiving turkey butterball uh, turkeys. So, <laughs> so for, for both the, the poult captive trials and then the hen captive trials where we put GPS transmitters on some domestic heritage breed hens to basically ground truth the accelerometer data. Again, those were um, heritage breed domestic turkeys, because obviously if we caught some wild hens and threw them in an aviary, they would probably go absolutely berserk and not provide us with very good information. <laughs> yeah. So Raina, so right now you're at a banding site. I think you're waiting on some birds, hopefully to move into where, wherever they're in, into position. How is that going? Correct. So I am in what we call the backup truck. Um, some places, it's hard to get all your equipment in there. So you'll have a truck waiting by with some extra hands and some turkey boxes ready to, to gather birds up. If, if the folks that are sitting in the blind at the actual bait site, you know, are successful in getting some birds captured. Um, so we've been out here since pretty early this morning, the, the bird, we had a couple of hens in the vicinity, but I think three hens that came down to the field, a couple of them wandered over to the bait site, but there's been a group of 10 or more, I think about 10 to 15 that's been coming to the site in the morning. So we decided, they decided to wait and see if those other birds showed up. And so far they have not. Uh, we'll see if they come in this evening, hit the bait site again before they go up to roost. Um, and if not, we'll have to come back another day. So it's been a lot of, a lot of sitting so far, but it's a pretty abnormally warm March day here in North Missouri, which has kind of been the story of the whole winter up here so far. It's been abnormally dry and some warm spells here and there. Um, but yeah, if we get some birds in hand, we'll be deploying some of those GPS transmitters and banding them um, and taking some other biological measurements and data from those birds as well. Well, I, I take, I, I just, this sounds like a fascinating study. And uh, look, we, I know that there's gotta be more questions here, but we could keep, we could keep y'all all day, but Lanny, look like you have one more you wanted to ask. I just wanted to ask uh, anything. I, I really wanted to ask if y'all hunting. <laughs> Someone should take me hunting. So it's like I think we should. Hunting. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Can we yeah. come up there? That was an invite, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll pass the radar on that one. Yeah, she will be able to. Yeah, um, I've only been turkey hunting for a few years now, but uh, hunted a lot last year, I think. So I've only been in Missouri. This will be my third spring turkey season this upcoming year. And so last year, my goal really was just to hunt a bunch of different places. So I hunted up north here on private land for a couple of days, um, hunted some public land down by one of our reservoirs in southwestish Missouri. Um, and I've also hunted some public and private ground around central Missouri where I live just to get a, a various, you know, different experiences of, of what turkey hunting in Missouri is like and ultimately was not successful last year. So I think this year, my strategy is going to be more to be more consistent about where I'm going instead of trying to visit a bunch of different places. I do have a couple trips in mind, but instead of trying to visit a couple of different places, I think I'm going to just be more consistent about where I'm going closer to home um, and hopefully be able to be successful then because of that consistency. 
Sounds like a good strategy. No doubt about it. If you find one, stay on it. (laughs) So, Randall, before before, before we let you guys go, it looks like Mac is raising his hand. He's got one more question. Have y'all come in contact with any Black Panthers in this study? (laughs) Uh, Not yet, no. He said he was in Louisiana. house cat size. I I, I do have a serious question, though. Is is there any – tips that you would pass along to fellow hunters from your studies or best practices in the woods in the time that that turkeys are nesting um i feel like anything i would have to say is just going to sound really cliche and it's basically get out and scout before the season you know before the season opens go out in in the morning listen for birds figure out what the common roosting locations are and try to set yourself up to be near that location come opening day. Um, the other thing, the other suggestion that I that I give folks and that I'm going to try to employ more this year is being patient and sitting through that mid-morning slump to try to get birds after they go about their morning business. So a lot of times, especially the gobblers will come down from the roost. They've already got hens in mind that they're going to target, they're going to go after and, and try to breed with or, or impress or do whatever. But then, you know, there's that lull period and then they might break off and try to find some new birds, some new hens that they weren't with that morning. And so trying to catch those birds, those gobblers in the later morning as they're moving into new areas, trying to find new hens or just going about their day, figuring out what their travel corridors are. That's going to be my strategy this year because my early morning strategy was not super successful last year. So I think I'm going to just try to get those silent birds as they're moving around. I like it. And, yeah, and you know, ba- based on that strategy, uh, I'm going to have to start coming in at noon instead of 10. You didn't What's, get here till noon today. <laughs> what are you talking yeah, about? anything new at yeah, all. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I, I guess one thing to add, like we talked about earlier, if you are hunting later in the season and you do come across a nest, uh, yeah, do not disturb. Yeah, no yeah, doubt about yeah, it. That's a good and, point. And I don't know if Mac was alluding to this or not, but just one question off of that is, is a tips while you're out in the in the spring woods this year, like anything you can do management-wise to maybe it's a small little thing that could possibly uh, impact or help save a nest, like any kind of management practice that you can kind of do. It, it may be a small thing, but it may save one nest kind of, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, guys, look, uh, Raina – Dr. Michael Byrne, we, we are, we, we're just so thrilled that you guys were on here. I, Dudley, did you have another question? I, you, I did. Well, did well, no, well, no I, I had just asked a question, and I think they were about <laughs> to answer it. You know, all. <laughs> is there a question I, in all this? Yeah, is, yeah, is there a, I thought you were making a statement. No, I'm sorry. I was asking if there was any advice <laughs> that they could give a hunter that they could – Things that they can do to maybe save a nest in the springtime yeah. when they're in the woods. Okay. Except for yeah. – In the moment, like just a small things. Uh, I mean, the easiest thing is to ju- just physically avoid it as much as possible. Try not to get close. Try not to leave a scent. Try not to count how many eggs there are. Um, really, it's the pretend you didn't see it and walk the other way approach is kind of what I would suggest. Yeah. Everybody wants to take a picture of yeah. it now and post it on social yeah. media. So if you're a, a true turkey lover, if you see a nest, skid out. the other way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, too, you can see, like, hen's behavior, obviously, like, if she's just standing there, like, standing her ground, not running off, like, clearly she's nesting yeah. or close to a nest, like, get away. Need you know, to stuff that like area. that is, you know, something to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, look, Raina Tile, 
She's a biologist with the Missouri Department of Conservation, specializing in wild turkeys and grouse. And, and a turkey then, hunter. Yeah, and a turkey hunter. And then we've got Dr. Michael Byrne, who— uh, Future turkey hunter. And, and he's—their <laughs> research is just fascinating. Guys, we've just—we're so appreciative of what you guys are doing. We want to kind of continue this and drop in with and touch base and get updated with what y'all are, are doing. We're very interested in anything that has to do with wild turkeys. In fact— in the earlier part of this podcast, we uh, the, Daniel and Neil are here, and they kind of announced a fundraising thing that Mossy Oak has started as a new um, a wild turkey stamp that will be coming out, and all the proceeds are going to uh, research for wild turkeys. So in the in the near future, we could be helping to fund some of the research you guys are doing. So. Um, Thank you all for for look for standing in the gap and working on projects like this. I mean, absolutely, it's uh, it's so important that people do that. Yeah, you guys are our heroes, no doubt. Yeah. So, (laughs) well, thank you. (laughs) Sounds good, man. Thank you for having us on. Well, thank you all for putting up with us today, no doubt. And thank you for what you're doing. Save the poults. It's a it's a huge thing for us. There's no question about it. This brand, this business, and this uh, this lifestyle we all cherish. That's some fascinating research going on up there. I love, you know, we I've, I've, I've used the term a couple of times, conservation in action, seeing, you know, oh, we make all these assumptions out in the field as, as when we're out there hunting and looking around. And it's really cool to see these smart guys put it all on a spreadsheet and be able to, you know, more or less give us some guidance on or, or some direction on what we're seeing out there. Well, can you imagine catching these poles? No. I don't know. I've caught a turkey before, but I've never caught a pole. Yeah, I want to go up there. Uh I want to shadow that, be a part of that one. Yeah, I'd love to be a part of that project. That's for sure. Maybe we can take some of this turkey stamp money and go up there with it and mm. work on it with them. Yep. I, I don't <clears> think <throat> that this will be the last time that uh, Gamekeepers uh, doesn't, you know, this podcast is not the last time we'll be seeing them. I, I think, don't think so at all. I think maybe, maybe a future Gamekeeper TV show. Yeah, I, I think so, too. That'd, That'd be great. great. And I like, you know, I like associating Save the Pulse has become such a thing on social media the past couple of years. David Hawley actually started yeah, Save the Yeah, I was going to give him a shout-out because uh, he did so start So shout-out to David. Um, but it mostly in the beginning, it's it's all been tied to uh, trapping. So we're trying to diversify what save trapping is obviously one of the most impactful things we can possibly do when it's uh, done intensively and timely, uh, especially this time of year. But you know, tying it to fire, obviously, can't get more save the poults than tagging poults to yeah. uh, study their habits to you know find ways to protect them. But yeah, yeah. we need we need everything we, we can get. Save the polls is a heck of a heck of an initiative. No doubt, save the polls is. Yeah. And and it's hard, you know, we know well, like we know about trapping, but uh, and we're all out there trying to do it, but it's a huge landscape out there to to trap against um in some of these landscapes that we're dealing with and on top of that. So, I mean saying that anything else we can do on top of that is uh, be yeah, huge. Yeah. I think yeah, cuz there's there's only so much each individual gamekeepers uh capable of and mm-hmm. some people may be able to have the free time to trap a thousand right. uh, raccoons and possums and stuff a year but some people don't have that kind of time so i think it's important to like for people to be able to figure out what they can do you know somebody may not be able to do much for saving the poults but whatever the little bit they can do maybe there's something that they can where they can use their time wisely and, and impact something more than just mm-hmm. two coons a year so yeah, you know, that's right so, anyway yeah, i think that's uh, really important to be able to spread information out there for each individual person is capable of different things. I'm going to so. take me some, I take my pruners, take my pruners anyways, some, <laughs> some turkey TPs like Dudley was talking about out there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that was that's very good. random. But I know still though, it makes you story. think. 
You know, it really does make yeah. you think. Well, we always ask, what did we learn? And we kind of wrap up with that. And I, I think we all probably were, learned a lot about what these guys were doing. I'm just so thankful that this research is, Missouri is such a great state for the wild turkey. Uh, yeah. And, and as a public resource, I think they do, not knocking my home state of Mississippi, but they do an unbelievable job uh, managing that public resource. So, yeah. Dudley, can you explain? I think you said we're saying Missouri has a tax. That yeah, goes- it's, it's my understanding that uh, – a percentage of the Missouri sales tax actually goes to you know wildlife and such, mm. um, and I I want to say Arkansas has that as well, but it's to a much lesser degree, um, and that might be something to in, encourage your yeah. representatives, you know, congressmen uh, to to Raise look, in, look into turkeys. that for all the other yeah. states. Yeah, Matt can ask Jeeves and get us an answer. Yeah. Over there. I actually already have asked look Jeeves at that boy. and. Weird. The Missouri Department of Conservation is uh, comprised of funds generated through a permanent conservation sales tax of one-eighth of one cent. Mm. Voters approved this in 1976. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. I've always been the, the most progressive, you know, state out there from a wildlife manager's perspective. Every symposium we go to, they're, they're looking yeah. at it as, as, as a model. So. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, shout out to Missouri. Call your congressman. Shout out Missouri. And, encourage out Missouri. that at, at your state. The show me state. That's right. All right. So, Daniel, before we leave, how, again, can somebody find out information about the vest and the stamp? Uh, the vest, we will have a, a landing page that won't give away too many juicy details, um, but you will be able to sign up, leave your email address or your phone number or whatever to be uh, the first people to be contacted about the vest when it is available for purchase. Uh, and the stamp, the same thing. When this podcast goes live, you should be able to buy one, two, or ten stamps and, and know that uh, every cent will be going to, to fund a, a great project. And they can go to mossyoak.com and it'll just navigate them there. Somewhere. And there should be something on the homepage. I don't have a direct link to okay. uh, say, but you should be okay. able to go directly to there. And, yep. and Bobby, if you don't it. mind, uh, Daniel and I are late for a date with Papa to uh, make sure his gun's all ready to go. Oh, yeah. Y'all better get out of here. we got to get out there and uh, make sure he's good to shoot a turkey. No yeah. 91 years old, Please. he's ready to get after him again. So this is his... Seventy fifth you know, season. Seventy fifth uh, yeah, season. Yep, seventy fifth turkey season. He's uh, been at it a long time. So. Did I hear so the awesome. Did I hear the Apex guys uh, lent a yeah? Uh, Jared Lewis, shout out Jared Lewis uh, from Apex Ammunition. He uh, he donated his personal twenty eight gauge that he uh, he was going to shoot this year, but he was like, uh, if there's one person in the world that I'd let shoot this gun uh, instead of me, he said, here, take it and give, bring it back to me at the end of the season. <laughs> That's so awesome. Uh, we're wow. just always looking for ways because he's just, he's just so weak, and we're always trying to find ways where he can be more accurate, more, uh, you know, you know, uh, my mind. More accurate. Play, but, yeah, yeah, yeah basically yeah. Be a, shot, yeah. Uh, just yeah. make a better shot on the turkey when it comes in. So a lighter gun, obviously, uh, help. will help him. Yeah, he, That's he, awesome. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but most people shoot a gun off their knee. Turkeys will – his his entire life, he's only shot him free-handed. He has his gun in his lap, and when he's ready to shoot the turkey, whether it, the turkey goes behind a tree or whatever, he draws on the turkey and shoots him free-handed. He's mm-hmm. done it his whole life. And uh, so anyway, at 91 years old, it's a lot harder to freehand uh, shooting a turkey. He's just he's real shaky and sure. stuff. So, and we can and we, for the life of us, we couldn't convince him to shoot one off his knee. So anyway, he's going to do it the way he's done it his whole life. So now we're just trying to find a lighter gun with the 28. And yeah. I think the t- uh, the yeah. guys at TSS say the 28 ballistically is the best, most efficient, most yeah. efficient yeah. turkey. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a really neat gun. So hopefully hopefully he likes it. And uh, we're about to go shoot it for the first time. So well, good luck to you guys. We'll no be doubt. saying a prayer for y'all when when, Every when the time comes that the weather will be right. Y'all get to take him and enjoy. The, the 75th season. Wow. 
Yeah. So, is there anything else need to be said? Mossyerk.com slash wild turkey stamp. We'll take you directly there. Slash. Now, if does that angle to the right or, or to, to the, the left? left? I think we'll let people figure that <laughs> out. <from the laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, Mac. This has been a lot of fun. You look like you have a lot of questions, and I, something tells me that I'm the my four wheeler is gone. I don't know what it may be. On, but I that, think your four wheeler is on the top rack of the biological yeah, warehouse. Yeah. Actually, okay. last shout out, but Jason Worley earlier he was part of the inspiration for the turkey stamp. The old pro turkey hunter. He's uh, keeping the legacy of the old pro turkey hunter alive. That's his Instagram handle, and he's uh, got a firm grasp on. The good values that the turkey community has is great follow. Yeah, give right. him a, give him a turkey follow. Turkey history old, and uh, turkey hunting values. Old turkey pro, old pro turkey, old pro turkey. That's a book, an old yeah, book. He's carrying on the gene nunnery legacy. I love yeah. that the word values is coming back. Hey, that's what we got to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It sure is. Well, this has been good. We've we gotten a lot of accomplished. Oh, is there anything else, Daniel? That's it. Okay. All right. I just, it's always an honor to share the podcast table with you guys. Other than Bobby, you just that was that. just yeah. That was for Richie Mac. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, Thank you, Neil. You, you just don't know. <laughs> I gotta go. So take us away, Mac. Yeah. Get us yeah, out of here. Why don't want you say goodbye? Dudley. Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Mac. Mac. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast, and be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine, and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.